Good morning. <clears throat> it is good to be uh, here. It's good to be with you. It's good to be done with uh, CPE for the moment. So back to a regular schedule. And so I'm happy to be able to preach to you on uh, Psalm 51 and continuing our series on worship and the elements of our worship service. We come this week to talking about uh, confession and the importance of confession and how it relates to not only our worship of God, but to our discipleship as well. So with that in mind, let's go to prayer. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, for this word that continually reminds us of your great mercy, of your grace, of your forgiveness, of the salvation that you have brought to us by grace through faith in Christ, for the work of your Spirit in renewing us, and in, indeed, uh, creating for us not only a clean heart, but a new heart. And for restoring and renewing within us uh, a spirit of obedience and joy and a willingness, O Lord God, to serve you. We ask, O Lord, that as we uh, delve into your words, we read Psalm 51, your spirit would continue to impress upon us the, the, the blessing and grace that confession is. A means, Lord God, not only of acknowledging our dependence upon you, our, our weakness as well, but as a reminder, as uh, we have heard from Paul's letter to the Romans, that now in Christ there is now no condemnation uh, for those who by faith stand clean and righteous and holy before you based on Christ's finished work. Father, I thank you for <clears throat> the opportunity and the privilege uh, to preach your word. And uh, we ask, Father, that you would continue to pour your grace and mercy into our lives, into our hearts, that you would equip us not only to serve you, but then also to love our neighbor, having been freely justified by grace through faith in Christ. You have now set us free to do the most uh, important work that a disciple can do, and that is to love our neighbor as ourselves, and thereby uh, glorifying God in the process. So speak to us now, Lord God, we ask, for we pray in Jesus' name, amen. I, uh, <clears throat> I had Angela read the, the superscript or the introduction to Psalm 51 because that introduction uh, tells us everything we need to know about the context and the content of the psalm that follows. Uh, a psalm of David when Nathan the prophet came to him after he had gone into Bathsheba, other translations will have after he had committed adultery with Bathsheba, which is really what is being referred to here. The events uh, of Psalm 51, the background to them, are found in 2 Samuel chapter 11 and chapter 12. And if you go home this afternoon, you read through those chapters, you'll, you'll see what transpires there. Uh, immediately, David gets into trouble uh, I've always uh, sort of chuckled when I read the verse 1 of 2 Samuel 11 because it says in, it was springtime, the time when kings go to war, and David stayed home. And so it's the idea of, you know, being a baseball fan, springtime, spring training, baseball, David should have, been in the, should have been on the field. Instead, he was in the owner's box watching things. Actually, he was in the owner's penthouse, not even involved with what was going on on the battlefield. And if you read through that account of 2 Samuel 11 and 12, you'll see there that David does have, uh, he commits the sin of adultery with Bathsheba, and then in the attempt to cover up that sin, uh, he then deceives her husband, calls her husband Uriah from the battlefield 
attempts to get, he gets him drunk, sends him home to sleep with his wife so that he can cover up his sin. But Uriah, being a more noble man than David estimated, sleeps outside uh, the, his house. And then when David tells him, why, or asks him, why didn't you do this? He said, how could I sleep comfortably when my men are on the battlefield sleeping in discomfort? And so David gets him drunk a second time and again sends him home. And again, Uriah proves to be honorable and faithful to his men and to his king, by not sleeping with Bathsheba. And at this point, David compounds the sin of adultery and deception by now plotting to have Uriah killed in battle, which he does. And after Uriah is killed, and after an appropriate period of mourning, David takes Bathsheba into his home as his wife, and he thinks, that's it. I've gotten away with it. God has somehow graciously and miraculously overlooked my sin. He was wrong. And we know he was wrong because at the end of 2 Samuel 11, we read these ominous words. The thing that David had done was evil in the sight of the Lord. The bill for our sin always comes due. In Numbers 32, 23, Moses says, be sure of this, your sin will find you out. And that's what happens to David. And so Psalm 51 is a case study of what God, of what David did when God confronted him with his sin. That it's about what David did when the bill came due and he was told directly to his face by Nathan the prophet, you have sinned. It's a case study describing as well how the Holy Spirit helps us to get right with God after we have sinned against him. And so it shows us how to confess our sin, how to ask God to forgive us our sin, and what God does to restore us after we have confessed our sin. So before we, we go any further, let me be clear in terms of what I mean by confession, because we use that word in terms of confessing our faith, stating what we believe. When I'm applying it to sin, by confession I mean that confession is admitting that we have sinned against God by breaking His rules, so that he can help us make a fresh start with a clean heart. It's simply telling God that we know that we have broken his rules, we have sinned. And by doing that, we then make ourselves known to God and we ask for his forgiveness so that we can make a fresh start with a clean heart. And there are six things, we're only going to do three of them today, so you can relax. We won't be here till lunch, till after lunch. We're going to do just the first three of these six things that I think Psalm 51 teaches us about confession. That confession, first of all, is a proper response to being confronted with the sinfulness of sin. That confession admits that sin originates, uh, that confession is rather grounded in God's promise to be gracious to sinners. And then thirdly, confession admits that sin originates in the human heart and only God can erase it. Confession is then asking God to give us what we need to stay on the path of repentance. It recognizes the importance of contrition when seeking God's forgiveness. And then finally, it is an act of faith that benefits the entire community. So let's look at the, the first uh, one of these where it says, confession is a proper response to, being, to having our eyes opened to the sinfulness of sin. Uh, the, the introduction, as I said, to Psalm 51 tells us the content uh, for its composition and as well as the context. So in 2 Samuel 12... After David has done all of his evil deeds in 2 Samuel 11, 
2 Samuel 12 opens up with the fact that the Lord sent Nathan the prophet to speak to David. The bill comes due, and David, uh, Nathan is sent to collect that bill. And so confronting the king, obviously, this is another thing that we, you know, there are a lot of times when we can read an introduction to a psalm, as we do here in Psalm 51, and, and pay no attention to it. But this introduction really is, is key. Because we think about what Nathan is doing here. He is going into the presence of the king, and he's about to tell the king that he has done a sin against God. Nathan does not know how David is going to respond to his confrontation. The king, if he's already committed adultery, he's already plotted the death of Uriah, what would stop David from also killing Nathan and quieting the only voice of conscience that would nag him about his sin? So Nathan, in obedience to God and in trusting in God's protection, does a very risky thing in telling David about his sin. But rather than be direct about it, rather than come right out and say, you have sinned, Nathan does what Jesus often did. He tells David a parable, a story. And who doesn't like a good story? Especially a story that Nathan tells. A story about a rich man, a poor man, and a little ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man. And how this little ewe lamb was so loved and beloved by this, rich, this poor man and his family. And so, as the text unfolds in 2 Samuel 12, <clears throat> this is what Nathan tells David. Now, bear in mind that the way a parable works, both in the Old Testament, especially in the New Testament, Jesus, the parable sort of pulls you into the story. It gets you emotionally involved in the events and in the, in the, with the characters so that you're really invested in the story. And then as you're invested in that story, that parable then turns and shows, holds a mirror up to your face and says, you are the person at the center of this parable. So Nathan, knowing that David has a strong sense of justice, the Lord knowing that as well, the Lord gives Nathan a parable to tell David that's going to appeal to David's sense of justice and fairness, and righteousness. And so the parable begins, there were two men in a certain city, the rich, one rich and the one poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Now, there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock from the, or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. And David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives! The man who has done this deserves to die, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Nathan lets David's words settle. You are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. 
And I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And as if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. David is caught. He is trapped. He is convicted. His sin has come to light. And God had convinced David that he had sinned by sending Nathan to confront him. Today, the Lord sends his Holy Spirit to do the same work. According to John 16, 8, Jesus on the last night of his life says the Holy Spirit will confront us with our sin in order to convict us, in order to bring our sin to light, to convince us that we have sinned, that we need to confess our, our sin to God and to ask his forgiveness. Sin requires a confrontation of sorts. It requires someone either the Holy Spirit directly through God's Word, or an individual. Every one of us in some ways needs a Nathan to confront us when we have done wrong, when we have sinned. The question then becomes, how will we respond when God sends us a Nathan? Especially when the Nathan may be your spouse, or your child, or your parent, or your friend, or your boss who may have nothing to do with Christ or Christianity, but points out that you have done something wrong. How will we respond in those moments when we are confronted in our sin? Because every Sunday, when someone like Carson or I or someone else stands up here in this pulpit and leads us in confessing our sin, they are acting like Nathan. They are confronting us with the reality that even though we have been saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, we still sin. And we have to acknowledge the fact that we fall short of God's intended will for us during the week. But the purpose of that confession isn't to guilt us or to make us ashamed. It is instead to bring forth from us an acknowledgement that God is gracious and holy and good and we need more of his grace, more of his goodness, more of his holiness, more of his forgiveness, that we might serve him more wholeheartedly, more willingly, more joyfully. The confession of sin presupposes that God is gracious and willing to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And then there's a progression to this. That confession produces conviction. Confession produces the fact that sin is brought to light. You are the man, says Nathan. And that this conviction then produces confession. David responds, I have sinned against the Lord. And then this confession then produces a contrition, a remorse, a regret, a sorrow for our sin. David prays, Psalm 51, be gracious to me, O Lord. And then this contrition produces the desire for a continued communion with God. Because later on, David will say in the psalm, cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. He's keeping in mind at that point is David that that's exactly what God did to King Saul. 
he withdrew his spirit from Saul and instead tormented him. David does not want to be tormented by God. He wants to be forgiven by God. When we confess our sin, that's what we're saying. My conscience can no longer bear the evil, the wrong that I have done, the word that I have said that was harsh and wrong, the deed that I have done that has caused injury. I can no longer live with that. Oh God, please forgive me that I may be delivered from this burden, that I may be delivered from this sin. There's a point at which confession brings to light that which we have done wrong so that it may be forgiven. That's why we sometimes will read and hear the words of assurance from 1 John 1.9 that if we confess our sin, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That verse is not meant to minimize sin, nor is it meant to encourage us to keep on sinning so that grace may abound. God has a way of dealing with his children who continue to sin. That's a sermon for another day. What's important for this sermon, for this day, for this message is this, that God confronts us with our sin because he knows how sinful sin really is. And God also knows that sooner or later, the bill always comes due. Our sin will eventually find us out. And when it does, when God drags our sin into the light of his truth, of his glory, and of his grace, that's when we see sin for what it truly is. Gross, repulsive, and ugly. How ugly, how gross, how repulsive? Look at the cross. Nails in the hand and feet. A crown of thorns on the head. A spear piercing the side. A back that is scourged with whips. Blood that is spilled in order to make atonement for our sin. That's how ugly, gross, and repulsive is sin because it required the penalty that being paid for us by Christ himself. Think about David's sin. He did more than engage in an inappropriate relationship. And you put aside any consideration of Bathsheba's role in the whole thing. That's not the point here. Because David is the one who sinned. David is the one who abused his power to sleep with another man's wife. He is the one who attempted to deceive Uriah. And when his cover-up plan failed, David is the one who plotted to have Uriah killed. You see a progression here. One sin leads to another sin, which leads to another sin, which leads to another sin. We've all read the news of crimes, particularly white-collar crimes, particularly crimes that involve fraudulent stock sales or insider trading, and you'll, you'll hear legal experts say, well, you know, the initial crime wasn't so bad, but it really is the cover-up that things really spun out of control. The same is true for David. He commits the sin of adultery, but in order to cover up that sin, he has to commit another sin. So one lie leads to another lie, which leads to another lie, until finally the whole thing falls apart and it unravels right before his eyes. And as those sins multiplied, David's soul became numb to the sinfulness of sin. Not until 
Nathan points to him after that parable is told and says, you are the man, does David realize how gross, how repulsive, how ugly is his sin? That in reality, what sin is, is it's an act of treason against God. More than that, it's showing contempt for the holiness of God. It's choosing, deliberately choosing, to say no to what we know God says is right and good and just and true, and substituting our sense of what is true and right and trust and good. What's noteworthy about David's confession is that when he is confronted with his sin, compare David's reaction to Adam's reaction in Genesis 3. God goes to Adam after he and Eve have eaten from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God asks Adam, what have you done? Have you eaten from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? And what does Adam do? The woman you gave me. The woman you gave me, she gave me and I ate. He goes to Eve, and Eve says, well, the serpent deceived me and I ate. David doesn't excuse his sin. He doesn't blame, he doesn't say, well, you know, if Bathsheba had not been bathing in the nude on her rooftop, this never would have happened. He doesn't do that. He doesn't deny it. He doesn't suppress it. He doesn't blame shift. I sinned, he says. I and I alone. He confessed, I have sinned against the Lord. Because confession is the proper response to having our eyes open to the sinfulness of sin. I remember, just by way of personal example, I mentioned before that anyone can be a Nathan. Even a child can be a Nathan. We, were, uh, we had just moved to Canada. We, lived in, we were living in a farmhouse that was... Um, It had, it had creatures in it that would, and you'd find these creatures, the evidence of these creatures in the cabinets where the cereal was. The basement would flood during a rainstorm. And uh, it was just, it was, and plus it was incredibly cold in the wintertime. Uh, remember, the, the, it was an oil-burning uh, furnace. And when the furnace would come on, the vents were in the, near the ceiling, the furnace would literally belch. You could just hear it go, boom, and puffs of black dust would come out of these vents. And Jill and I got into a, a very vigorous discussion one evening, uh, which morphed into an out-and-out -out argument. I don't even know what the details or what the cause of it was. I do remember storming out of the house and uh, going into our car, <clears throat> which was in the laneway, closing the door and just yelling and screaming at the top of my lungs, and I, I said words that a Christian pastor ought not say. And as I had finished screaming at the top of my lungs, saying words that a person should not say who knows Jesus, I looked, and there was, my, there was the face of my oldest son, Matthew, who was about uh, eight years old at the time, just his face pressed against the, the door of the house. And I just, I just bowed my head. But it got worse, because then he comes out of the house, and he comes into the car, and he sits next to me. And I said, did you hear what I said, Matthew? He said, yes, Daddy. I heard you say some words 
And they were very bad words. I was pierced. And I had a choice. I could have said, your mother just makes me so angry sometimes that I just... But I knew that wasn't true. And so I said, Matthew, I am sorry. I lost my temper. I ought not to have done that. I said things that were wrong. I didn't say, I said things that you shouldn't have heard, because then that would have been on him. The words came from my mouth into his ears. That's what happens when you see the sinfulness of sin. When you see it impacting the life of another, when you see the, the, the effect that it can have on someone else's life, even on your child. Now, thankfully, my son forgave me, and we were able to work through that, and Jill and I reconciled as well. But we don't recognize the sinfulness of sin unless we actually see it in the face of someone else. That's why it's so difficult to confess it, particularly if we have committed a sin in private. If we looked at pornography or if we have cheated on an exam, no one knows, no one sees. God knows, God sees. The Holy Spirit nags, nips, nibbles, churns. And sometimes it takes seeing sin in its ugliness and its effect on someone else before we can understand ourselves how deadly and ugly and gross and repulsive it is. And when God reveals it to us, the only response is confession. I have sinned. We have sung about, you know, there's nothing more that's required at that point other than the confession. There are things that follow, but at that point, just acknowledging it. Because this confession then is grounded in God's promise to be gracious to sinners. So David then begins the psalm properly by saying, Have mercy, or literally be gracious to me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. He's essentially saying the same, three, same thing three different ways, which is forgive me. But he's using metaphorical imagery to describe how thoroughly, not only has he sinned, but how thoroughly he wants to be forgiven and cleansed of that sin. For I know my transgressions, he says, my sin is ever before me. If you know the story of 2 Samuel 11 and 12, David's referring here not only to the fact that Bathsheba is in his house, the very woman with whom he committed adultery, but they had the child that she bore died. So his sin is before him, not only physically in the presence of Bathsheba, but emotionally in experiencing the death of this child for whom he had fasted and prayed for days until a child died. So he knows. These are not mere words that he is mouthing here. This is coming from his guts. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Again, he's not shifting. He's not denying. He's not suppressing. He's being honest. I deserve judgment. And following Nathan's, uh, David's confession, Nathan gives him this word of assurance in 2 Samuel 11. After David says, I have sinned against the Lord, immediately the Lord speaks to the prophet and says, the Lord has put away your sin. The Lord has forgiven your sin. You will not die. 
It's interesting here that both Nathan in this section here, both Nathan and David refer to God by his covenant name, Yahweh. Whenever you see the word Lord capitalized in your English Bibles, that's the Hebrew word Yahweh, literally I am. It's the, it's the covenant name that God used to reveal himself to Moses and to Israel. This is how Israel will know me as Yahweh, as the I am. However, when David writes Psalm 51, a change, a very subtle change, takes place in how he addresses the Lord. He doesn't refer to him as Yahweh by his covenant name. You see it in your English Bible? He says, be gracious to me, O God. He calls God Elohim, which is the name by which God first reveals himself in Genesis 1 as a creator God. The God who makes heaven and earth. The God who creates male and female in his image and likeness. Because Yahweh is a covenantal name by which God reveals himself to Israel. But Elohim is this all-encompassing name of God that refers to his justice and his judgment. And so David is saying something terrifyingly profound here. In asking God to be gracious to him as Elohim, he recognizes that when you sin bigly against God, against the covenant God of Israel, you don't call him dad. You don't call him papa. You call him sir. You call him father. You grant him the reverence that he deserves. You call him Elohim the creator of heaven and earth, the maker of men and women in his own image and likeness. Because what David is saying here, terrifyingly profound, is that any sin we commit against another human being is a sin committed against someone who is created in God's image and likeness. And if we sin against someone who is created in God's image and likeness, we are sinning against God himself. We don't think about that when we go online. We don't think about that when we fudge a budget report. We don't think about that when we cheat on an exam. We don't think about that when we get angry at the guy who cuts us off on the highway. We don't think about that. But David says, think about it because this is serious business. Because sin is ugly, gross, and repulsive. It is an offense not, a, not only to God, but an offense against God. You show him the respect that he deserves because he is the God of gods, the King of kings, the Lord of lords. He is the chief justice of the universe. And you, you show him awe and reverence because your life, my life, is literally in his hands. This is why David says, against you, you only have I sinned. Yes, he sinned against Bathsheba. Yes, he sinned against Uriah. Yes, he even sinned against the people of Israel because he is their representative. As the king goes in Israel, so goes the nation. So David understands there is no sin, no act that I commit that will not have repercussions upon my kingdom. Just as I as a father must come to the realization that any sin I commit eventually will work itself out in my family or in my church or in my business or in my friendships or in anything else that I'm involved with. The bill always comes due. And it will find you out. 
So rather be embarrassed before God in private and confess your sin than to be embarrassed in public and having to acknowledge that you have fallen bigly because you have refused to acknowledge the fact that sin is a gross, ugly, and repulsive thing in the sight of God because it is not only an offense to God, it is an offense against God. And confession allows us to unburden ourselves of that. This is not codependence, by the way. This is coming to terms with the sinfulness of sin. God himself says this. We went through Zechariah. In Zechariah 2.8, God tells the nation through the prophet, He who touches you touches the apple of my eye. And Jesus, when he tells the parable of the sheep of the goats in Matthew 25, when he talks about those who have visited people in prison, who have clothed the naked, who have fed the hungry, Jesus says, as you have done it to the least of these, so also you've done it to me. As you have not done it to the least of these, so also have you not done it unto me. So this is not codependence we're talking about here. We're talking about the, the interrelatedness of humanity with regard to our actions and our behavior and our attitudes. What we do has consequences. David broke at least five of the Ten Commandments. At least adultery, murder, theft, lying, coveting. Murder and adultery, that's commandments six and seven. Those are punishable by death. There's no sacrifice David can make for those sins. All he could do is confess them and then throw himself on the mercy of God. We, at least, when we sin, we throw ourselves at the foot of the cross. We thank God that the Apostle John writes in 1 John 2 that if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous, whom God made the atoning sacrifice for our sin. There is a means whereby we can be forgiven and spared the death that we deserve because Christ died that death on our behalf. David does not have that assurance. All he has is the knowledge that he must throw himself upon the mercy of God, presupposing that God is, in fact, merciful. And he knows that. This is the same man who writes Psalm 23. This is the same man whom God referred to as a man after his own heart. And David is showing that right now. Because a man who is after God's own heart confesses his sin immediately after having his sin brought to light. David, the lawbreaker, pleads with God, who is the lawmaker, to be gracious to him. He begs for God not to treat him with the same contempt with which he treated God. That's audacity. That's brazenness. That's boldness only grace can permit. Thankfully, Nathan's already assured him that God has forgiven his sin and that he won't die. Nevertheless, what David is seeking here is more than just words of assurance. He is pleading. He is asking God for an inner experience of forgiveness. We, we get that through the sacraments. Certainly in baptism, there's a, there's a symbolic representation in baptism, a sign and seal of God having forgiven us, that we go under the water of, the bapt, of baptism and then emerge, a death and resurrection takes place. There's a visual presentation and experience of being washed clean of our old life 
and being raised to newness of life. And in communion, we celebrate the fact, proclaiming Christ's death until he comes, that all of our sins are forgiven. We confess our sins before we have communion because we recognize the seriousness of what we're about to do. That a, that a man who is God in human form took our sins upon him and died in our place. And it's knowing and trusting in God's provision of grace in the past, which we see in the cross, that allows us and leads us and motivates us to trust God's grace in the present and then depend on that grace in the future because we're going to sin again. We are. You're going to get angry. You're going to have lustful thoughts. You're going to lie. You're going to become envious. You're going to cheat. And when you do, confess and allow the God of grace to wash those sins away as they have been washed away by the blood of Christ. All David is doing is, is, is foreshadowing another parable that Jesus tells in Luke 18. Luke 18, 13, Jesus tells a parable about a Pharisee and a tax collector. If you know anything about tax collectors, they were persona non grata in the Jewish community. They were Jews who had sold out to Rome. And they would, they would exact exorbitant taxes from their countrymen because all Rome was interested in was a certain percentage, let's say 10%. But if you were a tax collector, you wanted to make a little extra, you would charge 40%. You'd give 10 to Rome and keep 30 for yourself. Read about Zacchaeus in Luke 19. He is a tax collector. He did that. And in the parable that Jesus tells, the Pharisee stands before God and says, I thank you, I am not like other men. I tithe. I pray. I'm a good, moral, righteous person. I go to church. I teach. I lead my children in devotions every night before they go to bed. I get up early in the morning and I have my devotions. And to compound that, I have my devotions at night. I'm praying in the car. This is the Pharisee. Over to his Side is the tax collector whom Jesus says can't even lift his eyes up to heaven, beating his chest saying, God, forgive me, a sinner. And Jesus, that man, went home more righteous than the Pharisee. We're the Pharisee in that parable. We're not the tax collector. We think we are. But we're the Pharisee in that parable. And we must be very careful to understand where we stand before God. David presupposes the grace of God because he knows God to be gracious in the past. And so he prays for God to blot out his iniquity, to wash him, and to cleanse him. The idea of blotting, erasing from the, the scroll, the record of his sin. You want to update that? He's, he's asking God essentially not only to erase the hard drive, but to drill right through it and throw it away. So it can never be used again. Washing. You know, you know, nowadays, when you want to wash something, you, you go to the laundromat, or if you have a washing machine in your home, you just throw the clothes in, turn a few dials, press a button, psh, clothes are washed. You're not involved in the process other than touching buttons. Back then, the way you wash clothes is you beat them against a rock. David is asking God to beat out of him his iniquity. Bear in mind, too, that the washing process does not remove the consequences of our sin. 
God forgave David for his sin. David did not die, but Bathsheba lost a husband. She lost a child. And if you read further in 2 Samuel 12, you'll see that God told David, a sword will, eat, will not depart from your own house. He has to deal with the rebellion of Absalom, his son, who basically uh, mounts a coup against David. And things go desperately wrong. There's incest in David's household because of David's sin. Things go badly for David. God forgives us our sin, but he does not always alleviate us of the consequences of our sin. That's why it's so ugly and gross and repulsive. And then he wants God to cleanse him of his sin because David realizes sin is more than just this external thing. It doesn't exist out here. It's in here, and it's up here. Jeremiah 17 tells us that the heart is deceitful above all things, desperately wicked. Who can know it except God and God alone? So confession. Confession is grounded in God's promise to be gracious to sinners. It's having our eyes open to the sinfulness of sin. And then lastly, uh, in this, uh, half, the first half of the, of the psalm, confession admits that sin originates in the human heart and only God can remove it. David writes in this next section, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth and in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. And let me, let me just say this. Understand, I speak to you as a sinner. I, I, some of the most honest people I have met are recovering alcoholics. And I think that's because when you go to an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting, you start every meeting by saying, hello, I'm Michael, I'm an alcoholic. Just imagine if we started every worship service with, hello, I'm Michael, I'm a sinner. Would that make you feel more comfortable? I hope so. Because I don't speak to you as one who has mastered these things. I speak to you as one who struggles, just as we all struggle. And there's a great danger in thinking that we are the only one who has ever sinned. We are the only one who has ever transgressed. David says, far from it. No one needs to teach us how to sin. It's part of our spiritual DNA. It comes as easily to us as breathing. Despite knowing that, David asked God to forgive him, to help him not only practice the truth, but also to learn the wisdom of it. He knows what God wants. He knows the law. He's also painfully aware that he's broken the law. I think he's also painfully aware of the fact that this is, this is the problem with the law. The law can tell us what we need to do, but it does not give us the power to keep it. I've used this illustration before. You're going to get on Route 4 to drive home or any highway, and there's a speed limit sign. It says 65. That's the law. Does that sign stop you from going 70 or 75 or 80? Or if there's nobody else on the road, how fast can this thing really go? The light is red, but I don't want to stop. The law can tell you what's right and what's wrong, but it can't give you the power to do right 
and do wrong. That comes from God himself through the work of the Spirit. But David knows, despite that, the law demands sincerity, it demands honesty, demands transparency, it demands honesty, and it demands faithfulness. He also knows that God will see through any pretense of purity. Think of the Pharisee in that parable, the Pharisee and the tax collector. He knows that God knows what's in our mind, our heart, our soul, and our conscience. He also knows that God desires and delights for there to be truth in the inward being and wisdom in his secret heart, in that place that no one else can see but God that's within us, that inner being. David recognizes that because sin is rooted in the mind and in the heart, we must not simply practice truth and wisdom. It must take root in our heart, in our mind. This is what Paul will say in, in, uh, not only in Romans 8, there's therefore no condemnation, but he'll say in Romans 12, we need to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. Right? There needs to be a, a complete change in the way that we think. God's truth and wisdom are the only cure for a rebellious mind and a sinful heart, says David. And so trusting God to be gracious, he asks God not only to teach him wisdom, but to wash him with hyssop. This is a ritual, an outward ceremony. He's, uh, in the words of John Donne, God is asking David to, I love this phrase, he's asking God to unsin him. To make it as if he had not sinned at all. Which is a precursor for the whole doctrine of justification. That God would treat us as if we had never sinned. He asks for a physical reminder of God's forgiveness. We have that same physical reminder through baptism and through communion. Through also hearing the words of absolution and assurance. David wants God to treat him as if he had never sinned. Now think about the boldness and the audacity of that. But that's the audacity and the boldness that we have because of the death and resurrection and ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ. That we have boldness, says the writer of Hebrews, to go before the throne of grace and there that we can find mercy and receive grace whenever we need it, even when we have sinned and have sinned deliberately. By forgiving David, the Lord then will cause him to hear joy and gladness David compares his, his, his contrition to almost having his bones broken, the fact that he has been so exposed in his sin, but, that, but by God's grace, those bones will be restored. All of that is possible because God will be gracious to David. More than that, the Lord will hide his face from David's sins, which is just an allusion to what happens when the high priest would pour blood onto the, the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant, God would turn his face and not look upon our sin because they are now covered. No judgment will follow because judgment has fallen. So, commission, so confession is simply admitting that we have sinned against God by breaking his rules so that he can make, help us make a fresh start with a clean heart. We'll look at that next week. That confession is a proper response to having our eyes open to the sinfulness of sin grounded in God's promise to be gracious to sinners, admitting that sin originates in the human heart and only God can erase it. This also raises the question and the point, too, that I don't know if there's any other holy book in all of creation 
that shows us the flaws, the magnificent flaws, the outstanding flaws of its central characters. There is not one hero in the Bible who has not sinned spectacularly other than the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Think of it. Adam, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, uh, Jacob, his whole name means deceiver. Moses, Moses killed a man. Joshua, on and on and on and go. The Bible is startlingly honest about the flaw. Why does it do that? Why does God show us the sins of our forefathers? Unembarrassingly so, unashamedly so. They're on for public display. Why does he do that? Well, a Puritan named Thomas Brooks says it this way. We need to consider, he says, that though God does not nor ever will disinherit his people for their sins, yet he has severely punished them. David sinned and God broke his bones for it. The reason God records the failures of his saints is to encourage others who have fallen by weakness and infirmity from fainting, sinking, and despairing under the burden of their sins. He also records them as landmarks to warn others that are standing to take heed lest they fall. It never entered the heart of God to record his children's sins that others might be encouraged to sin. He would have us stay close to Christ and avoid all occasions and temptations that may give us reason to sin. The sins of others are landmarks to warn God's people about the rocks and snares as they sail through the ocean of this sinful and troublesome world. That's why. David is an example, not only of what happens when we sin, but what we need to do after our sin is brought to light. To go to God and to plead with him to be gracious to us because he delights and desires us to know that truth, to live that truth, to experience that truth in grace and forgiveness and loving kindness. You think about that. Let's pray.